You are listening to a podcast from Classic City Church. We're glad you've joined us. Our services are held at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 595 Prince Avenue in the Piedmont Sanctuary. For more information, please visit www.classiccity.org. This is a sermon from Pastor Lee Mason. Good morning. If you have a Bible with you, turn to the book of Amos. We're going to look at chapter 5 in a minute, passage in the book of Amos, chapter 5. I was, um, this week, earlier this week, was, was uh, so excited about reopening, so excited about getting together, and I have a uh, just fantastic reopening message from Psalm 68 that is going to blow you away next week. It'll blow you away next week. Um, but as, as this week unfolded, um, I felt it, would, it is uh, just important and incumbent on me as a pastor of a church um, that represents Jesus Christ and lives for Him and exists to honor His greatness, that we talk about the events that are going on this week in our country and have gone on for a while, but really culminated this week and really understand them biblically, understand what our response is, what does God require of us in light of these issues, in light of these things. So we're going to move through that. And there's a lot of, in, in this, our country, um, there's a lot of heat and not a lot of light on this topic. And I actually was going to try to not address this um, because I don't like doing trendy topics. I, a few years ago uh, in suburban churches, it was really cool to do sermon series on racial reconciliation. And it was done by pastors who had really no context or no experience doing it. And it was just trying to speak on cool trends. And I'm just not into that at all. And this fall, we're going to deal with this topic a little more in a sermon series uh, as we get into the, into the year. But today, I just feel this is kind of too overwhelming an issue for all of us to not talk about it. And so I'm going to kind of talk from the heart a little bit more. Um, it, it, Usually I do very prepared sermons. You guys hopefully know that if you've been here. I memorize them. Uh, I usually don't have this sort of an ad hoc sermon. But I just want to kind of talk about this sermon and talk about this topic and, and deal with it. You know, this week there was a meeting with Athens pastors. We meet every month for prayer, white and black. And then once a quarter we'll meet and we'll have what's called a racial unity meeting. And we'll talk about racial issues and we talk about race back and forth. We've gotten to the point where we can be honest and uh, black pastors can share with white pastors. We can hear them and we can actually share back our, our concerns and they can hear us. And it's been a really powerful thing. And we were meeting together this week to try to um, write a statement about racial unity. And we wrote one, which was great. Now, share it with you sometime. But, but um, one thing that was really challenging to me about the meeting is about when we gathered, it was at Athens Church, and 
there was about 30 or more white pastors there. And for a while, there was no black pastors. And then as the meeting went on, two showed up and two zoomed in. But a lot of our black pastors were so broken and so crushed over what they saw with the George Floyd murder and what they had seen weeks earlier when Ahmaud Aubrey was literally chased down and gunned in the streets of a city in our state while jogging because someone had heard that there was a black man loitering a few days earlier around a construction site and they worried that it might have been him. That they just couldn't make the meeting. As Lisa prayed, Romans 12, 15 says that we rejoice with those that rejoice, but we mourn with those that mourn. And this experience is horrifying for you and me to look at. But for our African-American brothers and sisters, this is beyond painful. It is beyond gruesome. It is beyond horrifying. That people that our government employ and empower to serve and protect would carelessly and cavalierly strangle a man to death in public. How would you feel if you hired an accountant or a financial planner, planner to look over your money and protect your money and make sure it went to the right places, it was managed properly, and it was maximized, and that person robbed you blind. Someone you hired to protect actually stole and took. How would you feel if someone hired to protect your life took it from you carelessly and ruthlessly? You know, I have always considered myself a uh, very cool white guy. Brick, you can tell him. <laughs> Gator was here, he would tell him. <laughs> and I, I just always was, I was called that actually. I didn't just take that title to myself. I was given it by friends of mine. But uh, I think when we look at I remember several years ago, I was with some friends, and it was when I was in Atlanta. And uh, when I was in Atlanta, the most exciting thing for me to do as a dad was to be involved with my youngest son's youth football team. He, he loved football. He was good at it. He was on a really good team. We were in this big league. There were 30 big football parks all throughout greater Atlanta area, four counties, and we would have these... It was called the NGYFL, and it was, we were as geeked as dads, as in the most crazy college football fans. That's what we were over our six-year-old boys playing football. And the team he played on were the Smyrna Spartans, and he later played for the Milford Warriors. And uh, all those teams, he was either the only white kid on the team or one of two white kids. And so, and all the dads would get together, and there was a group of us that basically 
you know, planned the team events out, did everything, and we just became really close friends over it. Now, I remember one time I was at Atlanta Bread Company and with five other of the, the dads. One was a guy named Ken Malone, a uh, great guy. One was a guy, a real dear friend of mine named Randy, who um, was, a, uh, was working at Post Properties. Actually, he's an executive with Post Properties, a very sharp guy. Dad was in the military. Uh, my best friend was a guy named Dexter Battle. Dexter was a, went to Georgia Tech, got a master's degree in information technology there, uh, was a, it flew all over the world uh, to do information systems. Um, in fact, another friend, Daryl Ledbetter, who coached the team, you guys have seen him at church before, he's been here uh, when he's been in town, he's an adjunct professor at UGA, Daryl uh, went to um, Howard University, and then he got a law degree at, at University of Cincinnati and is a Pulitzer Prize-nominated sports writer. He works for the Atlanta Journal and Constitution. He's the beat writer for the Atlanta Falcons. And then there's a guy named Oscar Prelu. Oscar went to Georgetown Law. Oscar wore Italian suits and drove a Jaguar. He was a sharp dude. And we were in Big City Bread, and we were talking. We were planning out our football team and who we're going to get and how we're going to beat everybody. And we were just a bunch of stupid over-the-top dads is what we were. We were all talking together, six of us, and we were going on, and we were talking about everything, and we would do this monthly. And I remember at one of our monthly meetings, the topic of the police came up, and they began to share horror stories with me. These are guys more educated than me. They could have bought me out Ten times over, way more savvy, way more knowledgeable. I was not their equal. And they had experiences with the police that I literally could not believe. I just could not believe it. And I couldn't believe it was every one of them. I thought maybe you were a dumb college kid. You did. No, it was as adults. Crazy experiences. And it was kind of helped me realize at that time that African Americans have a much different experience with this than you and I do. Much different experience. You know, you can sometimes there's an old saying, fish don't know it's wet. And sometimes you can get, just get so used to things that, that are crazy around you, but you're so used to them, you don't know they're crazy. In 1804, Alexander Hamilton, founding father of America, the first secretary of our treasury, he is on the $10 bill. Probably one of the most five significant people in the history, founding of America. In another very powerful, very important political figure in American's history, Aaron Burr, the third vice president of the United States. He was the vice president under Thomas Jefferson, were political rivals. And in 1804, they went to New Jersey and settled their rivalry by having a gunfight. Our founding fathers... On the $10 bill, Alexander Hamilton was murdered in a gunfight 
with, by the third vice president of the United States of America. And we were like, oh, shoot. I wish Hamilton had won. I mean, back then, that's how they thought. It just was a crazy, crazy thing. You know, if I got on the stage today and wore a suit and had a tie on that had a Confederate flag emblem on it, who wouldn't be horrified in this room? Who wouldn't go, what is wrong with you? What are you doing wearing a Confederate flag? If you could have some affection for the old antebellum South, they understand, but you're wearing a Confederate flag on a tie in a public meeting with black people and white people gathered. What is wrong with you? Would you all feel that way? Fifteen years ago, in this state, that emblem flew over our state flag everywhere, every day. Never once, I mean never once, did a white pastor, did a white leader in this state say, that's appalling, it's got to go. Never once. Never once. Sometimes we are in the water, and like a fish, we don't know it's wet. We don't know it's wet. And what's going on in our country that's very disturbing to me is our attempt to find a solution for this through politics. I don't know what politicians have to do to prove to you they can't solve issues in our country. I just sit there and go, I wonder what on earth they have to do next before we go. Let's, let's just give up on them and turn back to Jesus. I get disturbed when I see Christians handling an issue like this by going to conservative or progressive, whatever your thing may be, to find some political voice to affirm what's in your life. Listen, you're not a Republican and you're not a Democrat. And you're not a conservative and you're not a liberal and you're not a moderate. You are the possession of a king. And I don't want conservative values and I don't want progressive values. I want the reign of the king in our country. That's what we long for. That's what we pray for. And I, I just encourage you, unplug yourself from that stuff. Stop letting that poison influence you as a Christian. Look at Scripture. Look at what pastors around this country are saying and take it to heart. You know, there's a, several errant philosophies you'll, you'll see coming out of this. One is it's a political battle. It's the right versus the left. You'll see people think that life is a gender battle. It's men against women. Some will see it's an economic battle. It's the rich. It's the bourgeoisie against the poor, the proletariat. Some will see it as a racial battle. A lot of times in our country, we may see it as black versus white. But what the Bible says is the real battle, the real conflict that we experience as human beings within ourselves 
And as a community, it is not a racial battle. It's not a political battle. It's not a gender battle. It's not an economic battle. It is a moral battle. It is humanity at war with God. We're at war with our creator. Black, white, Asian, name it. All of humanity is at war with a creator. And one thing that creator decided to do, besides give us sensible morality to govern our lives, he made a multicultural, multi-ethnic race of people called humanity. And he has said, live together. And because we're at war with him, we fail miserably. One of the most amazing things I saw online this week was literally at a Black Lives Matter rally, there were seven white protesters attacking a black cop. We are crazy. Human beings are broken mess. All of us. Rich, poor, doesn't, and we're at war with our Creator. And the solution for this is for each, is for individual human beings to be reconciled to God through the loving mercy and the loving gift of His Son Jesus who bore our sins, who breached the gap not only between God and man, but He also breaches the gap between humanity and humanity, between man and man to reconcile us not only to God, but to each other. And so what does this look like for us as Christians? And particularly, I want to say this, what would it look like, what should it look like for a church like ours that is predominantly white? We were a church started by a church that's predominantly African-American. It was the money, the sacrificial giving, over and over again, of an African-American church, predominantly African-American congregation that made this church it's the reason we survived. But we are a church. What do we do? How do we handle this? How do we live in a multicultural world? In a multicultural country? It's believers that want to honor the greatness of Jesus Christ. Well, there's one powerful thing that you'll find all throughout is Israel, we know their history. They were a nation enslaved to the Egyptians. God brought them out by mighty works of power. They followed Moses through the wilderness for 40 years. They conquered a land called Canaan. And, and to govern themselves, Moses gave them laws and gave them rules. And they didn't do a great job of keeping them. And one of the principles that's talked about over and over and over and over again in the law is this principle of justice. Justice. And the way the word's applied over and over again in the Old Testament is it speaks to justice for four categories of people. Number one was the widow. Number two were the orphans. Number three was the poor. And the fourth were minorities. And he said, these four people you are to give justice to. And what did he mean by justice? It means you are to be particularly conscientious of them. 
You are to be particularly conscientious of the needs. You are to particularly understand that they have it tougher. That being a minority within a majority is tougher. That being poor is tougher than being rich. That being a widow is tougher than being a, a, a woman who has a husband in that, particularly that culture, to take care of you. And, and that being an orphan is tougher than having a family that you can grow up into. Justice. Micah the prophet wrote to Israel, and he said, what is required of you, mortal man? What is required of us mortals? He says that you do justice. You love mercy. And you walk humbly before our God. And in regards to those four categories of people, do. Everybody say the word do. Do. Don't just be fond of justice when you see it. You do justice. You love mercy. And walk humbly before your God. You're a mere mortal. Watch your attitudes. Watch your judgments. Watch your thoughts toward these four categories. The book of Amos, I want to read it to you, chapter 5. Verse 21. Amos was preaching in a day when it was, the economy was burgeoning for certain parts of Israel and not for others. And they were, the burgeoning class would have these gatherings where they'd get together and they would be so thankful to God for their prosperity and their wealth. But they were neglecting the other people. So here's what Amos says about their religious gatherings. I hate and despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring me choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. Here's what he's saying there to these people who are so thankful for their wonderful life and their prosperity and how great it is. They're gathering together and he's saying, listen, I don't want to hear you sing another song. They sound terrible to me. I don't want you to give another dollar in the offering plate. Your giving stinks. I am tired of this. I want to see you be a people where justice is rolling down like a river down the mountain. That righteousness is prevailing in your culture. I want to see a community that, that, is, that says we care about the minorities deeply. We care about the orphan, the widow, and the poor deeply. We are particularly concerned about them.
And again, I don't like the rhetoric around this. And I don't agree with some of the political philosophies around this. But I will tell you three words that ought to resonate in every one of our souls. It is this, black lives matter. Black lives matter. Black lives matter. As believers in a country that brought African citizens over to here in chains, that, that had a court that said to justify slavery despite our great constitution, you're just two-thirds of a human being that, that over and over again fought, fought against this thing. We need to have it in our hearts. Black lives matter. They really matter. Particularly matter. And again, I'm not saying I agree with the movement and some of the stuff with it. But those three words ought to ring in our souls. Do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. That's required of us. You know, when Jesus, when God gave Moses this incredible template on how to form a nation around the rule of God, and he gave them the law, and he gave them principles, and he gave them ideals, the idea was, I'm going to show the world how, what the true God is like. And back then, every nation had its own God. Every race had its own God. Religion was very segregated. One of the things that segregated humanity three, four, five thousand years ago was religion. We had a God. Every race not only had a different skin color, they had their own God. They, they made it sacred to segregate, be apart, and be distinct. And God, we read that psalm, what did it say? There's no God like you. No God like you. All the nations, all the nations, every race, every people group is going to come and worship you. You'll be glorified like no other being in all of existence because you alone are God. This was the vision God had that he gave to Moses of what the people of God would be like. What the Israelites did is they took that religion, and made it another segregated religion. They segregated people. They kept the foreigner out. They kept the Gentile out. They sneered them. They talked bad about them. They had attitudes and prejudgments about them. And when God became a human being in Jesus, one of the odd things you do if you look at him, he was particularly fond of provoking the racism in his culture. Story of the Good Samaritan. Story of some of the stories we looked at last couple of weeks of the healing miracles he did. Over and over again, he was provoking the racism. And one of the most challenging things about Jesus, in fact, I had somebody email me recently and ask me, how is this not a sin? Jesus one time went to the temple, and the way the temple was set up, there was three layers. One was this inner layer for Jews, but there was this outer court to bring in all the Gentiles to where they could come and worship Yahweh. And what had happened in Jesus' day 
Instead of giving room and space for Gentiles to come, and other nations and minorities to come in and worship the one true God, they were setting up money tables. And they were setting up places of commerce. And it was keeping people out. And Jesus saw them take a faith that he wanted to draw and attract the entire world and all kind of people to himself. Become another segregated pagan religion. John 2.15 says when he walked in that, it has a powerful three words. It says, Jesus made a whip. Jesus is God. How does God feel about segregated religion? He saw it in his day, and he made a whip. He took cords of leather, he took his time, he braided them together, he put talons on the end of it, and he went into a church furiously, swinging it, tearing the place apart, turning over tables, and he said this, You've, my Father's house will be a house of prayer for all nations, for all races, for all, for all. When the disciples looked at him when he got finished and he was stewing, they remembered a verse in the Bible that said, zeal for thy house has consumed me. Zeal for the house of God. Zeal to see the house of God be a multicultural, multi-ethic, not a tribal religion, but a religion that, that, that's, that is bringing salvation to all humanity. Consumed him. Consumed him. You know, we... We need to put this in practice. We need to do justice. We need to have in our hearts as a church, love everybody. Listen, I love rich people that live around here. I love them. I want them in our church. Trust me, it doesn't bother me. I love college professors. I love everybody around us here. I love everybody around here. But as believers that want to do justice, we need to have a particular love, particular love, four categories of people. It's required of you do justice. God, I hope, enjoys our worship services. I hope he enjoys when we sing and when we preach and when we give. But what he really loves is when his people through them, justice is rolling down like river down a mountain. You know, I grew up and I could tell you guys about my mom. Um, she, was, she grew up in the South, lower middle class. My dad grew up in a blue blood New England home. They couldn't have been more different in that way. And she, uh, she grew up around... Old Southern racism, you know, the 1920s, 30s, 40s. Myrtle was my mom's name. 
She was five foot tall. She's shorter than my wife. My dad's bigger than I am. He was like 6'3", and my dad was a powerful big guy, and my mom was this little. She wore 90 pounds and five foot tall and spunky. And anyways, um, she grew, and as she grew, she, she learned to hate the racism she grew up with. Hate it. And she was very determined that I wasn't going to be that way. And she would tell me stories. We went to, it was, I think I was in the third class. I think, Tommy, we were in the third class of students that were integrated. I think that we were, we were pretty early in that, integrated. We went to, I went to Fowler Drive in the first grade. And she would, my teacher was Miss Jordan. She was African-American. And my mom would just, oh, she just would make sure I knew she was great and, and all this. And there was a boy in our class named Derek. And he and I were the biggest kids in the class, which was very important to me back then. And we, he and I got on the scale, and we did this, your height and your weight, and we were the exact height and the exact weight. And I made a very wise decision then, for some reason at six years old, that he was going to be my best friend. And we were best friends. And my mom was the PTA woman, and she would come, and she would see me hug him, and she would say, she would tell me later, she says, in my heart, I would die because of what I was raised up with. I would see you hugging that black boy, and I would go, oh, my God. But you know what she did? She muscled through it. She knew she was wrong. She knew she was wrong. And she muscled through what was uncomfortable within her sinful state. She muscled through it. Went to another school my second grade year, Oglethorpe Elementary School. In that, in that classroom was a, uh, another uh, African-American young boy. His name was Tommy Brightwell. I got to know Tommy. Tommy and I after that had Miss Baldwin, third grade, Miss Fraley, fourth grade. Miss Brown, fifth grade. Miss Hector Wither, we had the two of them. Went to Clark Middle. We were on the seventh grade. We were on the green team. We had three things. We were the green team basketball team. We won the middle school championship. We both were on the team together. Both wore ribbons. Played ball together at Clark Central. And uh, Tommy's story is really powerful. I, I hadn't seen Tommy since high school, I don't think. I think I saw him one day playing basketball at the park and thought, he's still, he still can ball. It's, he's, he's really good. And um, Tommy, uh, it was last spring, I was walking and saw him walking down the street. It was downtown after church. We'd eaten downtown. It's kind of a rainy day. And he walked by, and I thought, Brick. That's what we used to call him. And he looked at me and he said, Who's that? And then he looked, he goes, Moose. They used to call me Moose. We kind of, as our nicknames. And we started talking. And, and let me tell you what, what had happened in Tommy's life. Tommy, uh, after uh, high school, went out, worked, worked hard, did really well, uh, had a good job, actually got married, bought a house, um, uh, married a couple times. He had uh, five kids that he had raised, uh, all three girls, college graduates. His son, his oldest son, is a lifetime Marine. 
and uh, his other son is just getting out of high school. And Tommy, great guy. And Tommy one day was in Jacksonville, Florida, visiting his family. He got a call from the police in Jackson County. And they, he had been accused of a crime. And what he had done, he had been working at a company that was going broke. And they had basically framed him. I don't want to get into too many details about it. And Tommy went to go talk. He didn't even know he was going into. He walks into an interrogation room with two detectives and someone else. No lawyer, no nothing. They screamed at him, yelled at him accused him, arrested him. Tommy went to jail. Tommy was put in solitary confinement because he walked in, he literally said this to him. They said, are you dangerous? If you know him, you know he's not dangerous. He's six foot three, 240, and he's a, what, a fifth degree black belt in Taekwondo? Yeah. So he just went in, they said, are you dangerous? And he's got hands like a claws. And he said, you know, well, I'm, you know, six three, 240, and my fifth degree black belt in Taekwondo. He just, didn't know what they were asking. They took him into solitary confinement. How long were you there, Tommy? How long were you in solitary? Yeah. Oh, how long were you in, in the, when they put you in solitary confinement? Yeah. 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 Yeah, Tommy in that cell started crying out to God and trusted him and we um what happened nine months later as he stayed in the jail, he was one of his jobs was to clean the office of the head of the jail. She was a lady and they got talking and as he was cleaning she said, You're not a cr- like I know criminals. You're not a criminal. What, what did you do? And he goes, I don't know. And he told her the story. She went and got his file. And that day said, get him out of here. Now, thank God we have a legal system and some <laughs> justice is coming to him. Praise the Lord. But when he came out, he came out, he lost his car. His place. He had no place to go. I saw him on the street. He was living in the, the shelter down here. John, if you're here, I don't know if you're John, if you're here, who runs that, thank God for you and what you do down there. That's what he was living. Nothing to his name. We talked. I couldn't believe the story. He started coming to our church. I wanted to wait a few weeks for him to kind of soak in what the gospel was, but we prayed together to receive Christ. And here's what Tommy found here. He found bank presidents and college professors taking him out to eat, looking after him, making sure he had a roof over his head. He found business leaders, guys in a Bible study I'm with who said, if he needs it, he has a need, he has a rent need, he has whatever, I'm taking care of it. And what we see is this someone who literally, this is a story of what we hear in movies and on TV literally happening 
God bringing him to Christ and through a church getting him back on his feet to where he's in a, a great place today. My mom raised me, raised me, despite her brutal apprehensions to fight through the prejudice, fight through the stereotypes. When I was a little boy, there was a boy named Jerome Sims. He lived in Paldo. We were part of this thing at, at the college. And I remember he would go with me there and he would come home with me to my house. One day, his mom said, hey, why don't you have Lee come stay with us in Paldo? My mom said, sure, I'm going to run a few errands. I'll be back in an hour. She said she about died, but she muscled through it. You know what we did for that hour? I played on a play playground with boys I went to school with, and we had a great time. Didn't know where I was at. Listen, when we have opportunities as a church to go do vacation Bible school at Rock Springs, when we have opportunities to go there and do cookouts, you know, this idea that we have to protect our kids from people, from a rougher background. Listen, you are encumbering your kids possibly from an opportunity. Do you ever think about that? Your kid having an opportunity to build a relationship. Your kid having an opportunity to connect with somebody else. Your kid having an opportunity that through them the gospel may come to somebody that's, that's in a much tougher situation than you are. What does the Lord require of you, O oh man? What does he require of mere mortals? That you do justice. That you love mercy. That you walk humbly with your God. As we go forward as a church, let's do that. Practically speaking, in our church services, I'm going to tell you this. In our church community, the four most priceless people that come to our church community among all the priceless people that gather. Should be the widow, should be the orphan, should be the minorities, and should be the poor. Anytime they come, they should be the first people greeted. They should be taken out to eat afterwards. They should be loved. They should be, they should be the most fascinating, interesting, important people that ever walk into this place. God sees that in our church. He'll love it. To see a church where justice is pouring down like a river, he'll love it. And he'll probably like our singing and our preaching and our giving too. But let's do that. Let's do it. Let me pray with you. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being in this great country that you decided to choose us to live in this country that is so great. And it is great to white people and it is great to black people. And we really love it. We're thankful for it. We're thankful that we get to be your people in this fabulous place. 
Help us as your people flesh out the vision you had for Israel and that you had for a church. That it would be a body that where the majority would love the minority more than itself. Where we would mourn with those that mourn. We would embrace, we'd understand, we'd move forward with brothers and sisters of our different races and different colors and different contexts. And we would be a city, we'd be a people that you smile at, that you love, that you like what's going on there, that really represents you well, that honors the greatness of your son. The son who hated seeing a religion you intended to draw all nations become segregated. Lord, we pray he'd take the whip, the cords to what barriers and what encumbrances exist in our heart to seeing that vision of yours fleshed out in our community. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody got a... This is like a... uh, creamer in a restaurant and do not know if I'm going to do this wrong okay, the, the, the top one's a little thin there's a wafer you see that as we, as we take this of course in remembrance of Jesus let's just remember uh, the incredible thing that all of us as human beings, black, white, red, yellow, whatever, we are in our human nature collectively in a battle, in a war against our Creator. We rebel against His commands. We rebel against His decrees. And one of those is to live together in harmony and unity and enjoy the racial beauty and wonder that He's blessed creation with. Be reconciled to him, then we can be reconciled to each other. And let's remember the price that was paid that you and I might be first and foremost reconciled to God. On the cross, Jesus' body was broken and his blood was poured out that you and I might be cleansed of our sins, that our sins might be remitted. Let's remember that as we receive communion. And commit ourselves as reconciled people to be just people and to see the reconciliation that God loves and wants expand into our community. Amen. Let's take it together in remembrance of Him. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Classic City Church. We hope that together we can honor the greatness of Jesus by growing spiritually, living authentically, and participating in His purposes. For more information or more sermons from Classic City Church, please visit www.classiccity.org.